Marissa, and you are listening to From Boise. Today's story was kind of hard for me. It's about true crime, and I don't like true crime. I think it's weird and kind of gross, and I mean, overall, it just makes me feel uncomfortable. (laughs) So to be honest with you, this was a hard story for me to write. I'm mostly happy with how it turned out but I'd love to know what you think about it. So let me know after you listen to it. All right, here we go. Two Boise authors, Kim Cross and Jay Rubin Appleman, have new books out today. Both are true crime stories. Kim's book, titled In Light of All Darkness, is about the 1993 kidnapping and murder of Polly Class and how the case transformed how the FBI does its work. Jay's book, titled While Idaho Slept, is about the four University of Idaho students who were murdered last fall and the media frenzy that has surrounded the case from the get-go. Next Tuesday, October 10th, Kim and Jay are speaking at an event called Making Sense of the Senseless. The discussion explores the ethics behind consuming and producing works of true crime and poses the ethical questions behind the research and writing of tragic stories. Where is the boundary between factual and sensational? Do these stories reopen old wounds or promote healing? Can true crime be more than entertainment or even be a catalyst for positive social change? In a time when the true crime genre is more popular than ever, it's an important and timely discussion to have. I am not a true crime fan at all. I have never had any trouble conjuring up all of the horrible things that could happen to me or the people I love or people in general. Therefore, I don't read the books, I do not watch the shows, and I do not listen to the podcasts. And I've realized that it's the ethics of true crime stories that keeps me from consuming them. It really bothers me that in so many true crime stories, entire lives are summarized into a few cherry-picked bullet points and then defined by the worst thing that happened to them. Where is the line between entertainment and empathy? What is the purpose What is the goal of sharing such tragedies? These are questions that I think we should be asking ourselves every single time we start to delve into a true crime story. So I chatted with both authors to learn more about their new books and what their goal for sharing these stories were. Kim Cross's new book, In Light of All Darkness, is about the 1993 kidnapping and murder of Polly Class and the subsequent investigation, where brand new FBI investigative tools and procedures were put to the test. Polly's case forever transformed how the FBI does its work. On October 1st, 1993, 12-year-old Polly Class was having a sleepover with two friends at her home in Petaluma, California. At about 10.30 p.m., a man dressed in all black entered Polly's bedroom holding a large kitchen knife. He told the girls not to scream or else he'd slit their throats. He bound the girls' hands behind their backs, put pillowcases over their heads, and gagged them. He told Polly to stand up and told the other girls to count to 1,000. While her friends counted and her mom and sister slept in the other bedroom, he kidnapped Polly and later murdered her. A stranger abduction from the home is the rarest of all kidnappings. Polly's case triggered one of the largest manhunts in FBI history, and the investigation would become so significant that it's still used as a case study in law enforcement education to this day, 30 years later. Kim told me, quote, I'm not a true crime reader. I've never been into the shows or the podcasts or anything, but I wrote this book because I have this crazy family connection that made me possibly the only person who could have done it this way, end quote. 
Kim's father-in-law is Eddie Fryer Sr., who was the lead FBI agent on Polly Class's case. He made key decisions as the investigation unfolded with 60,000 tips and 12,000 leads and investigations. He also made it possible for Kim to conduct over 300 interviews with nearly every key FBI agent, detective, and crime scene investigator who worked within this investigation. Most of the people Kim interviewed had rarely or never spoken to the press. Some hadn't even talked to their own families about the experience, and none of them would have talked to Kim without Eddie's blessing. This episode of From Boise is sponsored by Valley Regional Transit. If you didn't already know, VRT is working on creating a better bus system for you and me and everyone who lives in the Treasure Valley. VRT is on a mission to create a bus system that is not only efficient and reliable, but also adaptable as our community grows. You can check out the network redesign proposal at valleyregionaltransit.org. Kim is a New York Times bestselling author and journalist known for meticulously reported narrative nonfiction. In Light of All Darkness is an impressive demonstration of her ability to present the facts in a narrative form. The book reads like a thriller, yet it's an incredibly detailed and factual account of what an FBI kidnapping investigation entails. When Kim's husband, Eddie Fryer Jr., first suggested that she should write a book about the polyclass case, she rejected the idea. It wasn't really her kind of story. She told me, quote, I would need for there to be some like really uplifting or redemptive message for me to go to a place that sad and to take readers to a place that dark. But then I started looking into it and I realized that it's still being used as a case study today. And that's kind of crazy because how much technology has changed in 30 years, right? End quote. While she was considering writing a book, Eddie Fryer Sr., her father-in-law, invited Kim to sit on, on one of his classes. Kim saw an entire class of young investigators transfixed while learning about the polyclass case. She said, quote, this case was so complicated and so massive, and there were so many red herrings and things that didn't go the way they expected. There are just so many things you can learn from it, end quote. As she started doing more research to put together a book proposal, she found that so many of the people that had been involved in the case were now using it to teach, not just her father-in-law. Forensic investigators were teaching it in fingerprinting classes. The case was used in leadership classes and crisis management training. She also looked into what books had already been written about the case and found two books had been published around 1994 that were both riddled with errors. Eddie Fryer isn't even mentioned in them. Kim realized that she had the opportunity to write a book that nobody else could. She told me, quote, it really was, I think, a great combination of I had the skills to write it, and it probably helped that I was very squeamish about doing true crime and really afraid of re-traumatizing people and opening old wounds and, you know, stirring up things that people wanted to heal from and move on from. Maybe all the reasons that I thought I shouldn't write the book were maybe the reasons that I could, end quote. Kim spent seven years writing In Light of All Darkness. Much of that time was spent meeting with retired FBI agents, investigators, and witnesses, combing through boxes filled to the brim with documents that had never been released to the press or made public. Kim interviewed both of Polly's friends who were in the room with her that night. She talked to FBI and Petaluma agents and detectives. She talked to the citizen who found the items that led to the pivotal break in the case. She listened to never-before-heard interviews with Polly's mom the recording of the first 911 call, and the entire unedited recording of the confession. She took years of research 
and took on the seemingly impossible task of writing the story of the Polly Class case from beginning to end, presenting the facts and nothing more. She told me, quote, processing the primary source documents and photographs that I had to process for this was really hard because I'm the filter. I didn't want to include anything sensationalistic or gratuitously graphic, but I had to look at a lot of graphic stuff to understand what happened and then translate it in a way that I felt was giving the reader only what they needed to know and nothing more. That was really hard because I had to see things that I can never unsee. There were many days when I had to write through nausea, like I would just feel sick to my stomach all day. Not even necessarily the days looking at it, but just writing and thinking about what happened to her and what she must have felt like and how scared she must have been. End quote. Kim's goal for writing this book was simply to tell the story in detail. She wanted to share the truth about what happened to Polly and to chronicle the new science and advances that were used by the FBI that have gone on to save lives in the three decades since Polly's murder. During this case, which took place in 1993, so the dawn of the internet, the FBI tested and proved success for new advances in fingerprinting, polygraph, criminal profiling, composite sketching, hair and fiber examinations, fingerprint analysis, DNA analysis, and the use of forensic light and chemical tests to indicate the presence of bodily fluids. Kim said, quote, my goal was just to write the book of record, to get it right, and to be as comprehensive as possible. I feel like I did it respectfully and accurately and mindfully of all involved. I really felt like it was a collective effort. You know, the agents are incredibly invested in this book. It means so much to them to, I think, be a part of the book of record. So I'm really proud of that. I felt like a story midwife more than an author. I never felt like it was my book. It was our work, end quote. Polly's case was the FBI's first time lifting latent fingerprints with fluorescent powder and an alternate light source, which was called ALS back then. Today, it's referred to as forensic light. At the time, the technology was so new that the FBI didn't even own an ALS. The FBI's evidence response team leader, Tony Maxwell, happened to have one on loan the night that he got the call about Polly. He had been teaching himself to use the new equipment by lifting children's fingerprints from his wife's home daycare center. This is just one example of new technology and new organizational processes that were proven successful by the FBI's work throughout the polyclass case. Kim said, quote, the theme of all of my best work is that beautiful things come from our brokenness. And I hope that people know that as dark as this case was, really good things happened because of it. Like it literally changed the way the FBI does things in a lot of ways forensically. And the kidnapping protocols that are used today were written because of this by someone involved in this case and what they learned from it. End quote. At the end of this book, readers will meet another 12-year-old girl in Lodi, California, who was kidnapped at knife point by a stranger from her house while she was home with her sister and her friend. It was just six months after Polly had been taken. The Lodi police chief in that case had been to a briefing held by the investigators in the Polly class case, where they taught other investigators what to do if they were ever in a similar situation. Because of that, Lodi police and the FBI were able to find and save that girl within 24 hours. Kim said, quote, we can trace back to one life that was absolutely saved because of this case. But I have a feeling that, you know, if you think of the thousands of investigators that were trained by this case, who then went on to share what they learned, I feel like there's a ripple effect where I think a lot of lives have been helped by this. I guess my greatest hope is that this book helps someone that I'll never meet in ways I can never imagine and maybe I'll never hear about. 
or maybe it makes someone act in a different way that makes them safer or maybe makes them help in times of trouble. That's my big hope, end quote. J. Reuben Appleman's book titled While Idaho Slept, The Hunt for Answers in the Murders of Four College Students is about the four University of Idaho students who were murdered in November 2022. The book effectively summarizes all of the publicly available information regarding the four students who were killed, the man accused of the crime, he has yet to stand trial, by the way, and the media and social media frenzy that has surrounded the case from the very beginning. Jay is no stranger to true crime. He's a true crime writer, and he's also a private investigator. His 2018 true crime memoir, The Kill Jar, chronicles Detroit's most notorious and officially unsolved serial killer cases. It was named one of the best true crime books that year, and it also inspired the popular Hulu docuseries called Children of the Snow in 2020, where Appleman served as on-camera investigator and executive producer. Jay also has a True Crime 101 mentorship program for aspiring true crime writers, where he teaches the ethics and morality of the true crime genre, how to research a case and understand documents and evidence, writing about cold cases versus active cases, and ethically moving forward with publishing and promoting a true crime book. While Idaho Slept is his latest true crime story, And given that this horrific crime happened less than a year ago and the trial for the man accused has still not happened, a book about this may seem a bit incomplete, perhaps rushed, but Jay didn't set out to write the book of record. More so, he wanted to put together a rundown of what has happened thus far, especially how the media and people on social media acted and how their actions helped and harmed the investigation and people involved. He told me, quote, I wrote about, from everything we can know so far, what happened, who these victims were, who the alleged perpetrator was, how this case blew up on social media, how the social media presence around this case affected the investigation, how cyber sleuthing and armchair detectives are affecting investigations around the globe, and will continue to change the nature of investigative work for detectives working, let's call it, popular homicides. And what this means to the communities that are touched by these crimes, not just in the traditional sense of how they recover from the visitation of this violence, but what it means to have massive social media presence and global spotlight pour into your town. End quote. From Boise is supported by Boise Entrepreneur Week, which is happening right now. Today is day two of the five-day event that celebrates and builds Idaho's entrepreneurial ecosystem. If you are an entrepreneur right now, or you aspire to be one day, you should check it out. Boise Entrepreneur Week is totally free and full of resources. As you know, I am an entrepreneur myself, and I can honestly say that I would not be where I am without the connections that I've made over the years here in Boise. I think that one of the most important parts of being an entrepreneur is networking and meeting people and having conversations. And honestly, another super helpful thing for entrepreneurs, especially at the beginning when you're just starting out or when you're just getting momentum is having access to free resources. I love that Boise Entrepreneur Week offers so much for free and it's attended by so many smart people that really do want to help you in your business and along your journey as a business owner. So if you haven't attended, it's not too late. You can still register and attend the events happening over the next three days. You can register and learn more at boiseentrepreneurweek.org. 
As I'm sure you know, in November of 2022, four University of Idaho students were brutally murdered in their off-campus home. It is unimaginable to think about this happening to anyone, and it was especially unbelievable for something so horrific to happen in the ultra-safe town of Moscow, Idaho. The media and people on social media went absolutely nuts over this case, particularly while investigators were working to find a suspect. Jay says that the involvement of social media in major crime cases is happening more and more frequently. And he noted that in many instances, the quote, social media mob is kind of determining what is a major case in the online world. Jay said that this can be a good thing, but it can also be a very bad thing. He said, quote, I mean, in some ways, it's been very helpful to investigators, especially to the surviving family and loved ones of victims. If the social media community of investigators decides that this case is of merit, or somehow a case that is just confusing enough that they want to latch their claws into it and figure out the puzzle, so to speak, that's a great thing for the family members of the victims, because then you have not just 25 investigators, you have 25,000. He also noted that In the first few days after the Moscow murders, thousands of tips were sent into investigators by random people online who had gone through public Venmo transactions, TikTok posts, social media comments. He said, quote, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. It brings a lot of attention to cases, but where it goes bad is in instances like with the Moscow case where they start combing through too much where the imagination runs too wild, where the investigative impulse is too hungry without enough skills to back it up. The social media mob started to name suspects in the case, like, I think it was this guy, and then 12 more people think it was that guy too. And then all of a sudden, there are people getting called out as being related to these murders that actually had nothing to do with it. And now when you Google search those names, there's thousands of pages related to people who should have never been named as suspects, and they were only named as suspects by the mob. End quote. Almost immediately after news broke of the murders, hundreds of people descended on the small college town. Nearly every national, regional, and local television and newspaper outlet was on site. There was true crime podcasts and TikTokers and YouTubers camped out in the freezing cold. Reddit threads and Facebook groups formed within days, and thousands of people were constantly discussing the case and naming possible suspects. While I would like to think that some of these people had good intentions, there is an incredibly fine line between helpful information and entertainment. The victim's family members and friends were harassed with questions. People camped outside their homes, hoping to get a glimpse of their pain. Friends and even people who were simply acquaintances of the victims were named as suspects. People started receiving death threats. There's the University of Idaho professor who's currently in a legal battle with a, quote, TikTok psychic who was adamant that the professor orchestrated the murders, even though she had nothing to do with it. All of these groups and podcasts and YouTube videos are still going on today. Um, People are still posting about the case, even though there's been no trial and no new information. People are still sharing their theories and carrying on with their own, quote, investigations about who killed the four students and why. Jay said, quote, there's a lot of damage that was left behind by the social media and cyber sleuthing mob. Equal to the amount of help was the amount of harm. At some point, there has to be balance. Hopefully, there is some sort of internal code of ethic that develops within the mob. But in practice, I don't know how that happens, end quote.
So this delicate balance between presenting facts and sensationalizing crime, educating versus entertaining, and the sometimes blurry code of ethics is what Kim and Jay will be discussing next Tuesday, October 10th, at this event called Making Sense of the Senseless. This event is a partnership between Rediscovered Books and the Cabin's Ghost and Projectors reading series. Tickets are $20. I think it's important to note that the authors are not making money from this event and that $5 from every ticket is being donated to Faces of Hope, which is a local nonprofit supporting those affected by domestic abuse and interpersonal violence. You can find links to learn more about Kim Cross and Jay Rubin Appleman in the show notes. You can also find a link to the event um, with the discussion that is happening next Tuesday. All of those links are available to you in the show notes. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.